We're going to turn to God's Word, a significantly shorter reading. The last Sunday evening, we're going to read the second half of 1 Samuel chapter 10. 1 Samuel chapter 10, and there we begin to read at verse 17. This is God's Word to us. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, Set a king over us. Now therefore, Present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, He could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord. Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship. And he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah. And with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellow said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. But he held his peace. And we do give thanks to God for this, his precious word to us. Let's again pause in prayer. Father, as we seek to read these words and apply them to our lives, may you speak to us. As you spoke to the people of Israel those 3,000 years ago, may you with clarity and convicting power speak into our hearts that we would know the truth and live according to it with your enabling strength in us to your glory. Amen. So last Sunday evening we noticed how... uh, Samuel disclosed to Saul God's great purpose for him. But he did so privately. He didn't even share this information with the servant who had accompanied Saul on his search for the missing donkeys. And this week we see the same message being revealed, only this time publicly as all Israel is called together to learn the identity of their requested king. Last week was a story about lost donkeys. This week we're looking at a story about a lost king. 
Saul, who hid the true record of his encounter with Samuel from his uncle, now hides himself from the people who God has set him apart to lead. If you have an ESV, maybe it's the same in other versions, but certainly in the ESV, the text is divided into three paragraphs, and that will really uh, guide us in our three main points. I want to note with you the relentless God, the reluctant king, and then the rebellious subjects. The relentless God, the reluctant king, and the rebellious subjects. Firstly, let's consider the, the relentless king, the relentless God, sorry. Irish Presbyterians have always shown themselves as ready to challenge the status quo, whether it be in terms of church ecclesiology or in terms of politics. The poet John Milton was uh, part of the uh, civil service of, of the Commonwealth during the days of Oliver Cromwell in the 1600s, and he wrote about Irish Presbyterian ministers in none too flattering terms, describing them as unhallowed priestlings of a generation of highland thieves. And as a a denomination, we have a, a long tradition of dissenting. Indeed, the General Assembly is working together right now trying to discern effective ways in which people who are members of the Assembly can dissent against decisions that the Assembly makes. To do it in a a God-honoring way, not running to newspapers or to the media, uh, thus bringing dishonor on the name of Jesus Christ. But for our denomination, dissent has always been an important uh, practice for us. And this might appear a little bit strange as we turn to this section of uh, 1 Samuel. But what we discover here is that Yahweh, the living God, the, the God of the people of Israel, is dissenting against the decision of the people. He is dissenting against their choice to choose for themselves a king. But even as he dissents against their choice, he is submitting to their request. He has agreed to give a king to them. But he wants them to understand, he wants them to know that their choice is a foolish one, and one with which he disagrees. So verse 18, he, Samuel, said to the people of Israel, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians, and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today, you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and all your distresses. Now, this is difficult for us to get our heads around. If this isn't confusing you, you're not really understanding what is happening here. Because God is doing what he doesn't want to be done. And, and really, we would much rather have a nice, nice, neat God that we can just wrap up in a package and tie a bow on and always know what God is going to do, always understand him, always being able to explain and go ahead of him to figure out how God would act in every situation. But our God is too great. Our God is too glorious for that. He doesn't fit neatly into the little boxes in which we might like to categorize him. We read those very familiar words at the start of our time together, Isaiah 55, where God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, 
For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. You see, we would be much more comfortable with the the good God, the the loving Father of, of Matthew 7. You know where Jesus speaks there, 9 to 11 of Matthew 7, he says, Which one of you, if a son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And we want that God to always operate in our lives. We want God always to come to our aid and to save us from ourselves, from our own bad choices. But this relentless God who is our only Savior will, yes, surely save us, even though in the first instance he yields to our own self-destructive choices. The date of the general election, for which you've all been eagerly waiting, has been set. I can just see the excitement in your little faces. You can't wait. And Jeremy Corbyn has called the 12th of December poll a a once-in-a-generation chance to transform our country. But we know that that's simply not true. And we will hear other great and grand claims over the next six weeks. But we understand, if we have any uh, comprehension of how this world works, that every new election, every new government that's brought into being will not bring a new dawn for our nation. For the the message of, of 1 Samuel, perhaps above all books, reminds us that every earthly political system Every earthly king, every person set in power will eventually always disappoint. There is only one Savior, only one God who will rule us with perfect justice. There's only one who who governs his people with self-giving sacrificial care. There is no other source of hope for us in this world, no political party, no political system. You know how Peter declared in Acts 4 and verse 12 that there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And the relentless God, as he reminds his people here, has proven himself faithful in generation after generation. When they were in slavery in Egypt, he led them out. He brought them into this good and pleasant land that flowed with milk and honey. But they have forgotten. They have ignored his acts of salvation. They have gone seeking other help. They choose an earthly king. And God gives them what they ask for with all its self-destructive consequences. But yet, even as God gives them this request, he does not turn his back on them. He is relentless toward them in his love and in his mercy. He, even as he colludes with them in their disobedience, God is teaching them that one day a greater and perfect king will come to reign. 
And even in this, as we will shortly see, God remains sovereign. Sovereign even over our bad choices. Even over our rejection of his rule in our lives. God is relentless. The relentless God. Secondly, we see the reluctant king. Now, there's a process here, and we've seen this before in the Old Testament. If you look over to Joshua chapter 7, you'll see the same pattern being used where God brings first the tribes of the nation together and chooses one, and, and then he brings the clans of that tribe and he chooses one. And, and in that process, at that time, Joshua 7, it was all narrowed down to one man, Achan. He was picked from all the people of the nation, and then they stoned him and burned his body. Here again, the same pattern is being uh, unfolded. And you can imagine that as this happens, as it narrows all down to the family of Kish and then to Saul, maybe he was thinking, Achan. Remember what happened to Achan? They chose him, and then they stoned him and burned him. Maybe God is going to bring punishment upon me for uh, daring to think that somehow I could be king over this nation. But whatever the reason's going on, we're not really told. But whenever it comes that Saul's name is announced as the grand winner of the prize of the kingdom, he's not there. He is hiding. He's not in the front of the queue ready to go and receive his reward. He is not available at that moment. I want to think just for a moment or two about reasons why people are not available when God sets before them the challenge of a call. Maybe it's a call to mission. Maybe it's a call to ministry. Maybe it's a call simply to be God's means to speak to another person uh, across the street with the good news of the gospel. God issues calls to the hearts of his people, and there are many reasons why those calls are rejected. Sometimes people are hiding from the call of God because of dishonor. Men and women hide themselves because they have a sense of their unworthiness. Think of Gideon. Think of Isaiah. Think of Moses. Called by God and they they just didn't think they were good enough. Exodus 3, 11 says, Moses speaks to God and says, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Moses knew his messy past. Moses was a murderer. But God was commissioning him to lead his people. So some think they are too dishonorable and stay away from answering God's call. Some find themselves digressing to other things. Men and women hide themselves from answering God's call in their good intentions and their prevarications. Remember, Jesus spoke to some men. He said to one, follow me. Look Chapter 9, 59 to 61. And the man said, Lord, first, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first, let me say farewell to those at my home. Jesus issues his call, but these people digress. He calls them to service, but we discover that they have something else in first place. First, this is the first thing, and then your service will be the second thing, or the third thing. But when Jesus calls, his call is primary in our lives. It takes precedence. 
we can't allow ourselves to digress. Thirdly, disbelief. Men and women avoid God's call because they hide in their disbelief. John 1, 45 to 46, we read how Philip found Nathanael. They said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. And we rejoice that in that encounter, when Nathanael met Jesus, he became convinced of the truth of who he was. But his initial response of that disciple, when he heard the call to come to Jesus, he disbelieved. And sometimes it's distress. When men and women receive God's call, it's the worldly cares and the anxieties and the pressures of life that hold them back. Again, remember how Jesus, explaining the parable of the, the soils in Mark 4, said, And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Sometimes we, we allow the, 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 the burdens, the, the pressures, the, the cares, and the concerns of life to stop us from our effective service of Jesus. Distress. And fifthly, distractions. Men and women hide themselves among the pleasures of life. God is calling, but, but they have their earbuds in and they can't hear him. They are feasting on the pleasures of the world and they don't know the joys of the kingdom. Those terrible words that Paul shares in 2 Timothy 4.10 when he writes, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. Distractions. God has an opportunity, a calling to Saul, and when the call goes out, he is missing. He is hiding. We don't know why he was hiding. But Tim Chester notes in his commentary that ominously, even before his reign begins, Saul is lost. What do you do when you've lost something? Say a prayer to St. Anthony? I hope not. What do the Israelites do here when they have lost the one chosen to be their king? Look at verse 22. It says, so they inquired again of the Lord. Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. How, in a sense, humiliating for the people. That even though God had given them a king, they they couldn't even find him. They'd lost him. They can do nothing without God. They have rejected his rule over them, and yet he is still the one who shows himself to be absolutely in control of every detail of these events. He's still the one who's solving their problems. He's still the one who's providing the care. Saul, yes, he's hiding from his responsibilities, and that's a mark that will, uh, a trait that will mark his character throughout his reign. But God, even when he would be perfectly justified to ignore this request, even when he would be in his right to allow these people to stew in their own juices, comes to their rescue. Because as Paul tells of him reminding Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.13 that if we are faithless, 
He remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. More and more we will see how King Saul fails to rule with wisdom over the people. Whereas the true king, the king of heaven, never fails. J.D. Greer comments, Saul's sinful, selfish choices would cause many in Israel to die. Jesus' loving choices would cause many in Israel to live. Israel had to die for Saul's sins, but Jesus would die for ours. Saul was harsh and unforgiving with those who disappointed him. When Jesus' subjects disappointed and rebelled against him, he laid down his life. For them. And this is the stark difference between the very best of earthly rulers and the king of heaven. Tim Keller puts it like this in his book, The Reason for God. He writes, Jesus is the only Lord who, if you receive him, will fulfill you completely. And if you feel him, will forgive you eternally. The relentless God, the reluctant king, and finally, the rebellious subjects, verses 26-27. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellow said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. What we discover here is that the presence of a king brings a separation among the people. Two different groups of people. Some we, we read have, have had their hearts touched by God. And some despise. They rebel in their hearts. Literally, uh, the Hebrew says they are sons of Belial. Sons of wickedness. And we have to understand that the presence of the king always brings separation among the people. It did then, it does now. And we each, we each choose the king that we wish to serve. Some set over us a king who, who brings blessing into our lives, who brings life into our souls. Some choose to serve a king who brings death. And here we read of those who reject King Saul. And when they reject King Saul, they reject the heavenly authority that sets him in place. For even when Saul was at his most wicked, David, his appointed successor, would not raise his hand against the Lord's anointed. You know, and we'll, God willing, get to it sometime, 1 Samuel 24, when Saul went into the back of a cave to relieve himself, David was there with his men. 1 Samuel 24, verse 6. And he, David, said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. David would not harm Saul, although Saul sought to kill him. And behind every earthly authority, we must understand that there is a heavenly authority that that individual bears. Remember Jesus said to his disciples as they went out into ministry, Luke 10 verse 16, he said, the one who hears you hears me. 
And the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. There is a a, a chain of command, a a, a ladder of authority. The Bible is consistent and tells us that due care and respect must always be shown to those that God has set in authority over us. Whether it's children in the home, whether it's members of the church with its leadership, or whether it is citizens with the leadership of a nation. And here we see that the people cry out, many of them cry, long live the king. A cry that has resounded down through the ages as people willingly give honor to their ruler. God willing, we next Sunday morning as we come for Remembrance Sunday will sing together the words of our national anthem and and we will sing that prayer that her majesty may long be to reign over us. I think that's a prayer that's already been substantially answered as she draws toward the close of her seventh decade on the throne. And Saul's reign would last for 40 years. A substantial reign for those days. But we understand kings and queens come and go and only one will reign upon the throne forever. After the deliverance by the Red Sea, Moses sang with the people, Exodus 15, 18, the Lord will reign forever and ever. So what do you say to King Jesus? What do you say to this one, the only one who reigns forever as King of kings and Lord of lords? Is he the one who is rightfully ruling in your heart this night? See, when God entered our world in human flesh, his rule was rejected. He came to announce the coming of his kingdom, but people resisted his right to rule in their lives. John 19 Verses 14 and 15 read. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said, that's Pilate, said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Just think about those moments. These were crowds. These were people who had heard Jesus teach. These were crowds. These were people who had witnessed Jesus working mighty miracles in their midst. But when the chance came, they chose to reject his rule in their hearts. We need to be careful. We need to be mindful. To ensure that we truly have given Jesus the right to rule unopposed within us. For to reject him is a terrible thing. If you reject God as your king, you reject him as your savior. I suspect there's probably quite a few folk who don't know who Kanye West is. Ask your grandchildren. Probably quite a few folk here who don't realize that just over a week ago... Kanye West released his ninth studio album. It's called Jesus is King. And there's been lots of discussion, lots of questions asked about what is the motivation behind this change in Kanye West's lifestyle. Questions about the genuineness of his conversion. 
But there's no doubt that this music and its message brings glory to God. It's entered the UK album charts at number two. Stereophonics came in at number one. But irrespective of its place in the charts, its message is clear and every generation must heed it. Jesus is King. He always is. He always will be number one. And we must, as we think about this, ensure that that's the truth of our hearts. There is nothing above him, nothing more important to us than him. Who is the king of your heart? Can you, as we're about to sing, be stirred to say, crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon his throne. Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. Awake my soul and sing of him who died for me and heal him as thy matchless king through all eternity. May it be our testimony that our souls are awakened to sing to the praise of King Jesus, King of our hearts, King of heaven, King of this world, and may we follow where he leads and serve him where he sends us. To his glory we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing, crown him with many crowns.